This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Approximately one in eight women in the United States will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of their lifetime. Fortunately, breast cancer death rates have been decreasing since 1989. It's thought to be due to better treatment, but also from earlier detection. One of the more recent advances in early detection involves medical genomics. It's known that up to 10% of breast cancers can be associated with gene mutations. With us today to discuss these topics is Dr. Sandia Pruthi, a breast disease specialist and consultant in the Breast Diagnostic Clinic here at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thanks for joining us, Sandia. Great. Thank you, Dr. Kachaka. Well, let's start by talking about mammography, because I'm somewhat confused. It seems like there are a variety of types of mammograms available now. Um, Is digital, 3D, tomosynthesis, are they all the same thing, or is there a difference between these? So I I always think of the gold standard, or what we call the... um, the standard mammogram, and that's today the digital mammogram. And um, that's the one test that's been shown to reduce death from breast cancer as a screening test. So that's how I always started talking to my patients about mammograms. What you described as 3D is also the same as tomosynthesis. So this is a um, newer, um, think of it as a... um, a newer way of designing an app on a phone, right? You get a better quality. So they're adding 3D to give the um, mammogram better detection capabilities to be able to detect particularly um, lesions that may be masked in dense breast tissue. So that is the newer mammogram. And what's likely to happen is most most often when you get a new technology, it's going to replace the digital mammogram and it will become the new, essentially the new standard screening mammogram, Mm -hmm. the 3D tomosynthesis. Okay, all right. Let's talk about the sensitivity of the mammogram. Um, Do they miss some cancers? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, Mammograms are um, a problem if the breast is dense. The dense tissue can make it harder to detect a uh, malignancy. So sensitivity of a mammogram is about 90%. So what we'll say is um, for a non-dense breast um, pattern on a mammogram, the the chance of missing a cancer is about 10 out of 100. When the density gets um, to be a problem and the uh, masking of a cancer, the sensitivity of a mammogram in dense tissue drops to about 75%. So we're going to miss about 25% of breast cancers or 25 out of 100 cancers because of dense breast tissue. Okay. Now, does that improve when we have previous mammograms to compare with the current one? Absolutely. Um, Having um, comparison mammograms available to the radiologist allows them to see if there's any changes over the prior years. So... um, radiology centers, when patients move from place to place, they will tell the patient, we need to get your old mammograms as part of the interpretation of that one that they're having to avoid having to say um, that they may have to do additional views or extra mammograms. By having the old mammograms, they can get get a lot of information. Mm -hmm. 
Are there certain types of breast cancers that are specifically more difficult to see with mammography? Um, there is. There is a type of cancer known as invasive lobular cancer that can be more difficult to detect on mammogram um, and even ultrasound. Um, it's just the, the way in which the cancer um, involves the milk glands, um, which is a little different than when it involves milk ducts. And um, that's um, unfortunately one of the challenges of detecting a lobular cancer on a mammogram because of the, the way in which it presents. Are those common types of breast um, cancers? Actually, or? slightly less common. Um, ductal cancers, I would say, make up about 75% um, of breast cancers. 20% uh, will be the lobular cancers, and then there's the rare cancers that make up the rest of the types of breast cancers. So might you see that in a mammogram causing some distortion of the tissue around the malignancy? It could um, be a distortion. It could be asymmetry. But um, even more important in these um, scenarios where uh, the clinical presentation that um, a patient may present with is thickening of the breast tissue. Not always a discrete mass or lump um, is um, usually uh, an indicator we, we would want to be trying to exclude an invasive lobular cancer. Okay. Let's talk about the MRI. And that has been used occasionally <laughs> for, the, uh, for the detection of breast cancers, but not really as a screening test. Is that correct? That's true. Um, it is a test that is um, using contrast in uh, a contrast called gadolinium, which means that um, it's a little more expensive and it isn't the screening tool that you would offer to average risk women. It um, is used in a screening um, scenario if an individual is high risk for getting breast cancer. Um, if they carry the breast cancer gene, they have a strong family history of breast cancer, and today we have risk calculators that allow us to calculate the risk of an uh, individual's lifetime for getting breast cancer um, that will, um, if the risk on these calculators, one specific one known as the IBIS risk calculator is greater than 20 to 25% lifetime risk for breast cancer, that's when one could consider adding MRI to the screening um, uh, for that individual not to take the place of a mammogram. They would be complementary, both mm -hmm. the mammogram and an MRI in a high-risk individual. Okay. And how about the ultrasound of the breast? So um, I get asked uh, a lot of questions by patients, why can't we just do whole breast ultrasound as a screening tool? And remember, um, mammography is the only test that's been shown to reduce death from breast cancer, um, and ultrasound has not. So it, it isn't going to take the place of a screening mammogram. It could be considered as a supplemental test. Some um, places are using um, ultrasound um, in addition to mammography and dense breast tissue. And the downside to ultrasound is that it, it doesn't, the, doesn't, the benefit is it doesn't cause compression as a concern for some people. There's no radiation. But the downside is the false positives. So. Um, you may end up finding um, lesions on an ultrasound that require additional workup, such as a biopsy or another um, uh, or an aspiration. Sometimes to find that it's nothing to we're worried to be worried about. So for patients, that um, is also another concern: is the additional tests that come out of an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. I guess I have seen ultrasounds used most often in further identification of a nodule found on a mammography 
exam and helping to determine if this is a potentially malignant nodule or more benign. Exactly. And that, so that's called a diagnostic ultrasound or a directed ultrasound to further evaluate a clinical concern or a mammographic concern. You just mentioned diagnostic ultrasound. That made me think of another question. What is the difference between a screening mammogram and a diagnostic mammogram? So think of a screen as a test you would do in um, an individual who has no breast concerns, no new lumps, no pain, no dimple discharge. So that's when a screening test is appropriate. Diagnostic mammogram should be ordered if there is a clinical concern um, based on the in the providers um, finding an abnormality or the patient presents with an abnormality or a new change on her exam, then I would um, recommend that a diagnostic mammogram be obtained. More importantly, when you get a diagnostic mammogram, the provider ordering it um, needs to indicate where the concern is. Is it in the uh, example, is it at the 10 o'clock position, and how far away is the concern from the nipple? The more information you can give in a diagnostic mammogram can really help the radiologist to be able to evaluate that area more closely. Is the imaging any different between the two, or is it more letting the radiologist know this is our area of concern and pay particular attention to this spot? So a diagnostic mammogram could require um, compression or magnification. So there are slightly different te technology techniques needed in the diagnostic setting. Okay. I had a patient once I was ordering a uh, nuclear cardiac scan. And fortunately, her test for her heart was fine, but it picked up some uptake in one of her breasts, and she ended up having a breast cancer mm -hmm. there, which was I wasn't expecting to find. So that that gets us into nuclear breast imaging. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Where right. does that fit in the spectrum of imaging for the breasts? So think of uh, molecular breast imaging is the same term as nuclear breast imaging as a um, supplemental screen. Um, again, um, not to take the place of a mammogram, it would be offered in an extremely dense breast um, uh, scenario where a patient's um, mammogram is reported as extremely dense tissue, and it could be used as a supplement to further evaluate if there is any abnormality. Um, the downside is there's a slight concern that um, radiation, it is a um, radiation um, uh, injection that is used to detect these findings. That's um, the uh, contrast. The other finding with um, molecular breast imaging is that we can't do a biopsy if an abnormality is detected. So the patient would require to go would be required to go on to get additional imaging, possibly another mammogram, ultrasound, or even an MRI. And um, so and also the availability of this technology is not available everywhere. Only select centers are um, using molecular breast imaging. Okay. Are there some new tests on the horizon for uh, doing uh, breast imaging? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Um, we have been um, working with another mammogram detection tool known as Contrast Enhanced Digital Mammogram that our um, colleagues in Arizona have been um, uh, using today for diagnostics and could, could potentially be used in patients who um, don't meet that very high-risk category that an MRI would qualify an individual for, and this uses iodine as a contrast. Um, some pretty exciting um, uh, work coming out of that area, and um, we're going to likely see that as another tool that will be available for dense breast tissue. Okay. 
You can hear Dr. Pruthi and other colleagues at the Multidisciplinary Update in Breast Disease course on November 7th through the 9th at Amelia Island, Florida. This course will provide a multidisciplinary update from experts in their field focusing on prevention, evaluation, diagnosis, management, and treatment of benign and malignant breast diseases, high risk, and survivorship issues. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Are mammograms effective in women who have had breast implants? Um, so yes, we still would want to screen um, for uh, a woman who's had implants using mammography. The only difference there is because of the implant, the, ra- the uh, radiologists order what we call displaced images. So they require additional um, mammograms to further evaluate the breast tissue with the implants displaced. and um, but very effective still as a screening tool in that population. Okay. And how about in women who have had mastectomies? Do they still need mammograms? No. Um, We do not do mammograms after a mastectomy. Um, Here, the uh, importance of a clinical exam, if the patient felt something on the chest wall or on the skin that um, needed further evaluation or the provider detected something, then we would um, work with a ultrasound to Mm -hmm. look at that area, and additional imaging could require an MRI, but at this point, a mammogram wouldn't be indicated because there's no breast tissue to uh, uh, evaluate. Okay, and finally, how does the breast self-exam when women perform it versus how a healthcare provides it compared to breast screening with mammography? So I'm I'm glad you brought that up, um, Dr. Chaka, because the screening, tools I've talked about are mammograms, but breast um, self-exams, that term has actually gone away. And now we use the term breast self-awareness or breast health awareness and are encouraging women in the course of their usual daily um, dressing and showering to um, uh, become familiar with their own breast. And if there is anything that's different from one month to the next month, that um, should alert or prompt the individual to get that evaluated by their doctor. So um, I no longer tell my patients, you have to do a breast self-exam using um, a technique every month. I tell them in the course of dressing, um, be aware of any changes. And um, I do teach them a simpler, a much more simple technique that we call a sweep and walk. And think of a up the breast as a clock and just sort of sweep around using uh, a much more gentler motion to see if they identify something that may feel different in the course of their uh, daily dressing or changing um, or showering and to bring that to the attention to the doctor promptly for further evaluation. Interestingly, most women who um, present with a lump found it on their own. It wasn't through their doctor detecting the lump. And so I, I really um, advise all my patients, regardless if they're average or high risk, to be familiar and, and to, to let us know sooner than later if there's something that's different. Right. So that's different from a clinical breast exam where the provider um, would do the exam in a screening or um, if there was something braced at a clinic at an office visit, then they would do a, a clinical exam at that time. 
And I still think that um, the clinical breast exam has a role, especially in women with dense breast tissue, especially when I describe that scenario with invasive lobular as a type of cancer that could be missed on a mammogram. So um, the, the provider, you know, gets a, getting a chance to talk to their patient, finding out if they have dense breast tissue and offering to do the clinical breast exam yearly is still appropriate, and, and that's, again, a conversation. Unfortunately, um, there are guidelines that say the clinical breast exams are no longer recommended. So here, you, again, you have to work with your patient and find out what's the right um, way to manage them based on their history or their type of their uh, breast density. And so it's really um, a, a combination. You don't just um, rely on mammograms, uh, a negative mammogram doesn't um, guarantee you're not going to get breast cancer. Sure. And so it's a combination of the breast patient, the patient having some awareness, the provider, you know, offering to do the exam when it's in the right scenario based on the patient's concern or um, dense tissue, and then, of course, um, screening with mammography. So essentially all three complement each other, I, and they're I, all three important. I think especially if our goal is early detection. Sure. All right. Let's talk a little bit about genetic testing for breast cancer. Uh, what exactly is BRCA, BRCA? So BRCA stands for breast cancer, and so we usually um, use the term BRCA mutation, um, a breast cancer mutation, and there are two well-known uh, BRCA mutations. One is BRCA1 and the other is BRCA2. Good. Nicely, nicely named, one and two. <laughs> are there other genetic mutations associated with breast cancer? Yeah, actually, there are quite a few, um, and, and people may have um, heard these terms. There's one known as TP53, um, also known as Lee-Faremi syndrome. There's a P10 mutation known as Cowden syndrome. There's another one known as CDH1 that's associated with gastric cancer and breast cancer. Um, another one known as STK11. So these are uh, hereditary mutations that have um, other malignancies, including breast, as um, a high-risk uh, potential or hereditary risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. When should healthcare providers consider recommending these tests for patients? So um, it's a great question, and I um, I like to bring up um, Angelina Jolie's um, who's a famous actress that we all know of, who shared her story publicly with the, with the world that um, she was a carrier of the breast cancer gene. And um, the reason is that she really highlighted the importance of family history. And her mother had ovarian cancer and her mother's sister had uh, breast cancer. And these were young onset cancers. And um, that led to the mother testing, which subsequently led to this um, uh, actress testing. And so what uh, I have um, really taken the time when I'm in, in the room with my patient asking questions about the family histories to ask the age of onset of the cancer and um, the uh, individual, a first degree, second degree, and third degree relative, and then asking more than just was there breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, melanoma, brain tumors because of these other mutations. And if you're Getting a history with multiple generations of variety of cancers, young onset, that should be the red flag to consider uh, referral to a genetic counselor. 
And then the genetic counselor can really help get a much more in-depth history about these cancers and then guide the individual on what would be the appropriate genetic testing we can offer. Um, now, I just gave you a list of six different hereditary mutations, including the well-known BRCA1 and BRCA2, which make up about 50% of the hereditary breast cancer mutations. But there's now an additional group of panel testing. They call these um, uh, genetic panel tests that are being added, and there's another 20 that I didn't even mention. And the genetic counselors are able to decide based on that history what the patient is best served um, to uh, recommend that type of a genetic test. So I really do think um, having a genetic counselor as part of your team, especially in those practices where you have strong family histories, um, to be able to utilize them on who's, who should test, mm -hmm. the um, type of testing, and then to discuss the pros and cons of testing. So based on what you said, if a patient had genetic testing shortly after these came available um, and was negative, but they still had a significant family history, it may be wise for them to mm -hmm. be tested again. There's some new information out that wasn't available in the past. Absolutely. And um, being tested, I would say within the five years, if they hadn't had it repeated, that would be an indication to repeat the testing, uh, especially with the new panel testing. Sure. There's another group that I, I don't want to forget, and um, I mentioned you know, testing based on family history, but if an individual's already had a cancer, especially breast cancer, um, and has never been tested, or if their breast cancer was a triple negative breast cancer, that's a estrogen progesterone negative tumor, HER2 negative, those are ones that have been highly associated with being more of a mutation uh, associated cancer that they should be considered for testing. All right. So let's say a patient tests positive for genetic testing for breast cancer. What are the implications for that patient and what are their options? So this would be someone who does not have cancer and um, pursued the testing either because the family member already had one and this individual was now tested positive. And this now becomes a scenario where we describe it as high risk and we have to discuss what are the ways in which we're going to detect cancer early in this high-risk individual or prevent cancer. And so early detection would mean, um, of course, breast awareness, the clinical exam with the provider, and mammography, and now we add MRI. And the, the, this individual, the mammogram and MRI are most often um, alternating every six months, so they're getting some type of imaging every six months. And many women will choose to do this with the mutation for maybe five or 10 years. And um, especially if they're still interested in childbearing or they are not ready to pursue the more aggressive um, prophylactic procedure, that being a prophylactic mastectomy mm -hmm. or a prophylactic oophorectomy, removing the breast tissue or the ovaries are not uh, simple decisions requiring a lot of discussion with the patient about when's the right time to do it and some of the uh, issues with reconstruction that would have to come in for mastectomies, and then with the ovarian um, surgical removal puts these women in early menopause and dealing with um, managing menopausal symptoms for some women as early as 35 or 40, where there are some downsides as well as benefits of having the hormones available. And so these are 
complicated discussions that really benefit from um, having these individuals working with a breast health um, center or, or experts in breast high-risk management um, because we kind of address all of this in terms of what's right for this individual patient and create a plan, essentially mm -hmm. a, a treatment plan. Finally, one last question. Let's say a t patient tests positive for uh, genomics and breast cancer. Will that affect their ability to obtain life insurance or change their uh, health care insurance rates? So um, fortunately, there is a um, Genetic Information Discrimination Act, um, uh, non-discrimination act, sorry, so it's known as GINA. And um, this protects the individual uh, when it comes to health insurance and employment um, from discrimination. Um, but it doesn't cover life, disability, and long-term. But that's, again, another important conversation that the patient who is pursuing testing um, will discuss with the genetic counselor. We've been talking about breast cancer diagnostics and genomics with Dr. Sandhya Pruthi, a consultant in the Mayo Clinic Breast Diagnostic Clinic. Sandhya, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Welcome. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.